Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Okay, here we are after another not-so-super Tuesday for Bernie. I'm doing this from my bathosphere deep under the Pacific. Anything to escape the Satan bug here, which has the whole country pretty bummed out, and we're going to talk about all that. Axe, we have a special guest. you want to do the big intro? We do, and I'll tell you why we have a special guest. Because I can't figure out what the hell is going on here, right? The, the world has gone crazy, and we need more wisdom uh, than we than we generate on a weekly basis. So we had to call in our buddy John Heilman uh, from the Circus, the Recount, MSNBC. We can't name everything that he's involved in, or we would run the whole course of the podcast out just introducing him. But uh, Heilman, welcome. I got. A que- uh, let me tell you what's bugging me, you guys. Yeah, I was trying it. to think about how to start this podcast. You know, you mentioned the primary, and that's what we do, right? We we cover the great pageant of democracy, and we bring that sort of strategist view uh, to it uh, in a sense. Ex- right. Yeah. According to Vulture, we, we are nostalgic watchers of the old days of politics. So we cover Which, the pageant with creaky bones. But yeah, go ahead. Yes, but- well, actually, if we if it is the Geritol set, just remember, wash your hands frequently. <laughs> don't go out. Uh, listen to our podcast. Uh, but uh, this is very serious. I mean, you, you um, John, you, you, you're the conceit of the circus is a little bit the same. It's like guys who and gals who know this arena going out and covering the campaign, which you cannot do anymore. Um, all of a sudden, like in three weeks, the world has changed dramatically. Three weeks ago, or a little more than three weeks ago, Bernie Sanders was the putative favorite for the nomination. Everything was rolling along. Trump was dismissive of the uh, of the uh, coronavirus and said it wasn't going to be uh, a big thing. Uh, and here we are. Uh, and... Um, I think we we got to talk about what happened on Tuesday, and we maybe should get rid of that and out of the way first. But then I think we got to talk about sort of the politics of this moment, the politics of the pandemic and sort of what this means for the process, what it means for democracy, what it means for Trump, what it's now going to mean for Biden. Here's the most amazing thing, though, David. Yeah, I actually think it's even crazier than that. It wasn't it's six weeks ago we were still in the middle of impeachment. I mean, you think about the way the clock has worked. Yes. It's, it's I six, remember it's, that. It's remember this that calendar thing. year. It was the end yep. of January. You know, my birthday is January 23rd. And in the middle of around my birthday, we were dealing with, with how impeachment was messing with the Democratic nomination process because the candidates were not able to be where they wanted to be in Iowa, New Hampshire. They had to be back in at least three or four of them, five of them, whatever the number was, had to be in Washington. 
because of the Senate trial on impeachment, we've gone from one giant exogenous variable changing the nature of the Democratic nomination process. We had a few wild, crazy weeks of something that looked a little bit more like normalcy in the sense that people were voting, you know, but even then you had the Iowa caucuses, which was itself kind of a a clusterfuck that went off the rails in a totally bizarre way. And then just a few weeks later, Mm -hmm. essentially the nomination contest has been suspended and I suspect really canceled in some sense. I don't don't think there's going to be a chance that anybody votes in any more primaries in this, in this season, those postponements are going to turn into permanent things. So it's just, it's, it's amazing in this short a period of time. Unless they do it by mail. It's, it's, it's mind, it's mind bending. Yeah, I totally agree. We're in bizarro land, but you can do a through line to it. I mean, if you start when a, you know, reality show clown with orangutan hair hacked the Electoral College, everything has been akin to since then, but it has, it's accelerated. You know, as you say, we had the Iowa, New Hampshire don't matter anymore. Then we had the most remarkable comeback we've seen in nomination politics in memory. Uh, and now we're veering into the world from impeachment to the election uh, no longer even being in the center of American life anymore. It's like a quiet little sideshow while we deal with the, uh, a pandemic crisis like we haven't had since 1918. So it just keeps coming quicker and quicker. It's the most remarkable comeback in history, i.e. Biden has a lot to do with Trump and how much he's defining the Democratic race. But let's talk for a second about what happened Tuesday and where we are now and just dispose of that. And then we could get on to these. Yeah, it won't other, take long. <laughs> these other issues. But uh, Bernie Sanders was uh, stopped by uh, Manu Raju of CNN uh, in the hallway of the Capitol yesterday and asked if he was reassessing uh, his campaign. And uh, he, he didn't take it well. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. What's your time frame for making a decision? I'm dealing with a global crisis. Right now, I'm trying to do my best to make sure that we don't have an economic meltdown and that people don't die. Is that enough for you to keep me busy for tonight? (laughs) Well, you can feel the warmth there. That's the magic that put Bernie in the commanding position he's in. Bernie's grumpy, (laughs) and there's a reason. He's now 313 delegates behind. No one's ever overcome a lead that large. By the way, Barack Obama never had a lead uh, of more than 100 in the pledge delegates. 27 states have voted, 23 left. As you point out, John, we don't know when and if they're going to vote. But even if they did, Sanders would have to win 60 percent of the delegates uh, moving forward. And with proportional allocation, that's virtually impossible. Biden's leading in national polls, 56-35 among Democrats right now. You can't break through. There's no campaigning. There's no coverage of the campaign. Right. It's it's impossible. And the product is failing. I mean, if you look at the county by county stuff in Florida, Arizona and Illinois, it, it wasn't a contest. It, it was a thumping. It was a big eraser wiping out graphite pencil marks. There, there's no spark of life in those numbers anywhere. I think he carried like two or three counties between all the states. They were all small in Arizona. So Bernie doesn't have an argument anymore. He doesn't, he doesn't have – he has a direct right. mail list, so he can hang around and make noise. But the campaign is a muscular thing or mathematical possibility is done unless – Joe Biden, like, you know, vanishes from the face of the earth and there's some crazy lightning bolt, which this year I won't rule out. But by any conventional measure, it's done. I mean, in addition to the fact that Biden dominated the way he dominated in the three states that voted um, across virtually every demographic, virtually every uh, corner geographically, every county geographically, it's also the case that 
if you imagine mm-hmm. there being votes uh, in this primary process ever again, um, there's there's no erasing the fact that the coronavirus is going to be the dominant issue. And you look at the polling around that, and Biden is the clear choice of the Democratic Party as the person they would rather see uh, as the nominee and the person they'd rather see in the White House who has the capacity to handle a crisis. So he dominates on, he was dominating on every level before the coronavirus became the central fact of American life. It's not going to not be the central fact of American life for many more weeks or months to come. And he dominates on that issue too. So it's, it's just, there's no, there's no mm-hmm. daylight for Bernie Sanders. Again, I think Mike, you know, it would have to, you would literally have to have a, 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 a health event. You'd have to have something where Biden was rendered inoperative as a, as a candidate for, for Sanders to be able to come back. Right. Out of the race. Yeah. The one thing that Bernie has is he does have his irreducible core. He has his base. Yes. A lot of young people there there who who are deeply committed, not just to him, but to the notion of very uh, fundamental uh, change. And their, you know, their notion is that he should hang in there just to raise these issues to amass delegates that he can broker at the convention to impact uh, on the platform. And I, I, I do think part of Biden's task, and he he did have a line uh, in his uh, speech, his very kind of odd speech, only in that it looked like it was coming from a cave in Afghanistan uh, <laughs> on Tuesday night after the primaries. He did have a, a, a line of outreach to those young supporters. Let's listen to that now. Our campaign has had a very good night. We've moved closer to securing the Democratic Party's nomination for president. And we're doing it by building a broad coalition that we need to win in November. You know, it's a moment like these that we realize we need to put politics aside and work together as Americans. Bernie, I think what he's grappling in w- with right now is the reality versus the pressure he's getting from his his movement, uh, if, if as it were. And, uh, you know, he did say on March 8th, he did do an interview on this, and he was asked uh, whether at some point he would get out of the race. This is what he told George Stephanopoulos. And if it becomes clear, though, in the next month that you cannot get a plurality, you will not be heading to the convention with the lead, will you drop out or take this all the way to the convention? Look, we will fight for every vote that we can as, we're, as we try to win this election. I'm not a, a masochist who wants to stay in a race that can't be won. Yeah, but I think he's a, he has a high pain level because, <laughs> you know, even hanging in this last week was a bit of a fool's errand, but he wanted the debate and he wanted the try. He got it. He got crushed. So I think his mind gets it. I think emotionally he's having trouble, hence the explosion at the reporter. But often, you know, yes, he's a prisoner of his movement, Axe, as you're kind of implying about his core core wanting to go on. But the job of a leader of a movement is to steer the movement. And it's not in anybody's interest for him to hang around the race as a nagging irritant to Biden, making Biden's task of sending the messaging to try to over time, because there will be wounded pouting for a while, to get these people lined up behind him against Trump, which I think is a doable thing for Joe. And the speech showed they're thinking about it. But it's time for Bernie to put things beyond Bernie first. Yeah. Heilman, he canceled, he suspended his Facebook ads. Yep. He didn't make an ask for money the day after the primary. He said he's, mm-hmm. they said he's, he's reevaluating his campaign. He's going back to Burlington. Uh, what, what are the odds that by the time this podcast uh, is, is downloaded later today or <laughs> by the end of the week that, uh, that Bernie Sanders will have suspended his campaign? 
Uh, I think the odds are pretty high, um, not 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 stratospherically high, but but reasonably high. And I think you know you guys talked about it in your last episode. You could see Bernie going into the debate trying to begin the dance of how he was going to orchestrate his exit and try to mm-hmm. try to begin the process, which you know how hard this is, David. It's like you watched. Yes. I mean, you think about the orchestration that was required in two thousand eight um, to get Hillary Clinton. Not just to get her emotionally in a place where she could let go, but also to get her to talk to the Pumas. Remember those people? Party Unity, my ass, her supporters. Yes, yes, um, yes. That was a whole drama of of and the orchestration of it on both sides. Going to Unity, New Hampshire, the road to Unity, right? Um, aptly named. It's hard, right? Um, when you have diehard supporters who not don't just love you, but also detest the other candidate as you know, an establishment toady as a corporatist, as a centrist, as a moderate, as a temporizer, et cetera, et cetera. But you could see Sanders kind of trying to start that process heading into the debate. And then I think, you know, a number of things happened. Right. You know, the debate unfolded. Biden, you know, was great in that first half talking about the coronavirus. But then in that second half of the debate, where it seemed like Bernie was offering him various opportunities to try to win over Bernie supporters, Instead, Biden kept getting more and more cantankerous and contentious and mm-hmm. arguing about the various issues that Bernie was kind of attacking him on, but attacking him in a pretty mild way. So I don't know how that debate ended in Bernie's mind. Like whether I, I have this in my mind, it feels to me like Bernie was trying to begin the process by which he could make an orderly exit from the race. And yes. then that second half of the debate sort of spun out of both of their control in a way that didn't make Bernie's job easier if the job, I mean, you know what I was saying before about the orchestration of this is you got to have both candidates kind of working tacitly together to make this work, right? To get Bernie to drop out and then, because he needs those votes, Biden does, right? But if one side, if if either side isn't cooperating in the process, it breaks down. And it feels to me more like we're in a place where it's it's not where either one of them want this to be right now. Um, but maybe the reality is that Bernie's supporters with the right kind of leadership to Murphy's point by, by Sanders can be induced to focus on Trump, which is ultimately what really matters here. Yeah. And it's going to take that from Bernie to get there. I think it's just hard for two 73 year old cranky semi egomaniacs to do a precise tango. You know, they just Biden gets his Irish up and then it escalates. And you know how campaigns are. They're always staff around. Some are trying to land the plane, but others like fight till the end. The romance of the charge. So it's just hard to do. Biden got his Irish up, but he had a hell of a St. Patrick's Day. And the story is is very clear now and uh, and we'll see um i i think we're going to know within a few days i agree with you john i thought for a week leading up to that primary that from the wednesday after on march 11th when uh, bernie lost five of six that he was signaling that uh he was trying to bring the plane in for a landing and he was looking for biden to just provide some lights on the runway uh and you know but but uh for whatever reason biden didn't pick up on that Staffer said an unfortunate thing after the debate that was needlessly provocative, comparing Bernie to a protester. protester. Hope yeah. you know for uh, we'll we'll see if they get uh, get it together. It sounds like they've been talking in the last few days, so maybe to your question, X, because I'm I'm torn on this one. See what you guys think. In the normal world, I think Bernie would put the thing to sleep this week, but because the coronavirus has put everybody's campaign on suspension to begin with. You know, maybe Bernie just does nothing for a while. 
and, and just kind of exists out there without he active could. campaigning. And so he's not in, he's not out, he's just kind of Bernie for a bit. I, I think that might happen. I'll tell you that that would be, I think, super unhelpful from, from Biden's standpoint. Sure. I mean, the reality is that, you know, we don't know what the future holds here in terms of, as we discussed before, the primaries. We don't know if there's going to be a Democratic convention. We don't know whether we're going to move to vote by mail for the general election. We don't know a lot of things, but I think that we still, everyone still remains hopeful that there is going to be a general election. And, and I think there are some Democrats on the Hill who are going to start um, thinking about attaching uh, pieces of legislation, creating pieces of legislation or attaching things to legislation to try to ensure that there is an election, a general election in November. And if that is the case and the general election takes place on the scheduled date, Joe Biden does not have that much time right now. I mean, yeah. every day that Bernie does not does not get out of this race and start the process of trying to help him unify the party is a wasted day for Joe Biden in what is going to be a really, really tough race, no matter what, in, a, in an atmosphere of chaos, economic uh, breakdown, potentially. Maybe they'll be started the first signs of some recovery in the fall. And Donald Trump will talk about this later, I'm sure. Private postured as a wartime president is now trying to claim credit for the country bouncing back. I mean, Joe Biden doesn't have time to waste right now. The general election has started. And I think from his point of view, he needs Bernie just hanging around out there is not helpful uh, to the cause that Biden and all Democrats should now be focused on. Yeah. And and, and Bernie himself is called an existential uh, crisis. So we'll see if he acts uh, on those words sooner uh, rather than later. But let, let's talk about where we are now, because no one's ever seen anything like this where uh, the uh, election, you know, is is barely news. And the entire uh, focus, as it should be, is on this, what is a, an enormous crisis, overlapping crises, a public health crisis, and now a uh, an economic crisis, the likes of which may exceed what we experienced in 2008. I mean, really, really frightening times, but we are the hacks on tap, so we should... Talk about what this means in terms of the politics of of the moment, uh, and uh, where does it put these players? Is uh, you know, and and how do they how do they approach this moment, and how do they campaign? You know, starting with tr- Trump. Yeah, well, you know, it's the classic scenario where when there's a terrible crisis, it is a huge opportunity for the incumbent president to perform well because the nation's eyes are upon them. On the other hand, performing well in competence has not been the hallmark of this administration. They're better at switching the channel, picking silly reality TV show fights. It's work for them. So, so if you're Biden, you, you have great simplicity now. You have challenges. How do you campaign? But the message you know, is empathy, which is Biden. That's just an amplifier. And competence, which is a little trickier for Biden because he can stumble. He's got the resume, but I don't know if he can have the performance. Uh, Trump, meanwhile, just has to do a really good job in a crisis, and we've now had a few weeks of seeing how that works. And and you know he's trying his old Trump tricks of change the channel. It's now a Chinese attack, but um, I I think all in all, Biden's task is a little simpler than Trump's. Hyman, you you created you created a little mischief the other day by uh, uh, tweeting out from from your recount bunker a uh, calendar of Trump's comments on this crisis from the beginning. Let's take a listen to that because five million or more people already have. We have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China. We think we have it very well under control. We pretty much shut it down coming in from China. You know, in April, supposedly it dies with the hotter weather. When it gets warm, 
historically that has been able to kill the virus. People are getting better. They're all getting better. And the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. And you'll be fine. Uh, They're going to have vaccines, I think, relatively soon. Not only the vaccines, but the therapies. Therapies is sort of another word for cure. You're talking about very small numbers in the United States. Our numbers are lower than just about anybody. It's really working out. And a lot of good things are going to happen. And we are responding with great speed and professionalism. It's going to go away. Yeah. No, I don't take responsibility at all. We're going to all be great. We're going to be so good. This came up. It, it we came up so suddenly. This is a pandemic. I felt it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic. All you had to do is look at other countries. The coronavirus. You know that, right? Coronavirus. And this is their new hoax. We're 15 people in this massive country. And because of the fact that we went early, we went early, we could have had a lot more than that. We're doing great. Our country is doing so great. So the key element of that is that it, if you saw it in video, as it's meant to be seen, is that it's laid against the calendar, right? And so you heard all those bites of Trump downplaying the virus for starting in January through February into March up until this Tuesday. And then you hear him say the thing of, well, of course, I always knew it was a pandemic. And then we go back to an earlier bite of him calling it a hoax. And the and I, I think it was a, 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 one of the guys on our team at the recount put it together. And the calendar, actually, the visual element of yeah. it makes it very powerful to see it as it unfolds. And I think it's important in this respect to the point that we're talking about. That moment when Trump on Tuesday said, of course, it was always a pandemic, marks an important moment in Trump's shift in how he was dealing with this. For up until this week, until Monday, he his attitude was that he was the what we what me worry president. It was the you know the don't worry be happy president. He downplayed, downplayed, downplayed either because he didn't understand it or because he thought that he could somehow will it away or wish it away. It was a product of his ignorance or his um, desire. He thought you know some combination of ignorance and, and Pollyannish ishness. And then this week it shifted when the markets dropped again. On, on Monday, after the Fed came out on Sunday with the big rate cut down to zero, and then the markets crushed him again on Monday, you suddenly saw the pivot. And the pivot is to two things. One is to, he's now adopted the mantle of a wartime president. He, he on Monday basically said, well, this is going to take a long time. It might not be, we might not be out of the woods until the late summer. That was the first time we'd heard Trump say anything that sober about this. That was the time frame. And then on Monday, on Tuesday, he had to deal with the inconvenient reality of having downplayed it for two months. So he said, well, no, I never downplayed it. I always knew I was ahead of the crowd in understanding it was a pandemic. And then yesterday he said explicitly, I'm a wartime president. This is a war and it's a war against the Chinese virus. So it's basically now he's shifted into wartime president mode. He set the goalposts for recovery at late summer. And we know that like like uh, Governor Cuomo here in New York says he thinks the peak is 45 days from now. So Trump's doing his back of the envelope calculation that if the peak's 45 days from now and the and it starts to tape, to peter out in the 45 days after that, if that's the timeline that he's operating on, and the thing is basically we're kind of getting back to normal by June or July, Trump can say, well, I said it was going to be July or August. We're a month ahead of schedule here because we waged war from a wartime footing. I was a wartime president. And on top of that, of course, the predictable layered Trump xenophobia and racism, which is to turn this thing not just into a war, but a war against a Chinese uh, a Chinese foe. He's already indulging in the conspiracy theories that somehow this was intentionally unleashed by China 
to make mischief in, in the United States. And to cover, they had a major national catastrophe of their own. Yes, of course. Well, that makes no sense as much of it doesn't. But this is a very Bannon-esque kind of way of dealing with this. This is what Bannon would want from Trump. Pretend like you're, you're Douglas MacArthur. Pretend like you're Roosevelt or Truman or Eisenhower. And then layer on top of that the kind of jingoistic, racist, xenophobic element of attributing the, the, the peril to the Chinese. And that's, I think, what he now thinks is the only way to win. The way to win now is this is the way. It may not be a high odds thing, but if we're going to have this gigantic recession slash depression, um, this is Trump's only way out of the woods here is to go down this path. It is. But I want to just challenge uh, one thing you said. I agree with uh, almost everything you said. But when you described his initial reaction that you captured so uh, creatively in your in your mashup there, uh, you called it uh, a product of either ignorance uh, or Pollyannishness. I, I think this reflects the way Trump deals with the world. He basically spins and he sells. And his idea was, I'm just going to downplay this and, you know, uh, and I'm going to tell people it isn't that serious and, and they will believe me. And you know what? A lot of his people did believe him. In fact, there's an economist poll even today uh, that says uh, when people were asked if the threat of the virus is being exaggerated for political reasons, 44% of Republicans said yes. Uh, and uh, that is a, that, you know, th- that translates actually into real danger because what it does is encourage people as the, his amen corner on Fox News has been, had done for so long to ignore this. You know, what Rush Limbaugh said, it's nothing more than the common cold. Uh, just go out, live your lives, go to the saloon. Devin Nunes was saying that as as late as this week. Sunday, Sunday. There are real consequences to this, you know. But I think it was a strategy. I don't think it was uh, just, uh, oh, it, if it was ignorance, it was willful ignorance. Well, that's that's all I would say, David, is that I don't disagree with that. I think it was a strategy, but underlying it was ignorance because if you understood how bad this was going to be, you would have understood that you that ultimately the 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 don't worry be happy strategy was doomed to fail if you understood yeah. how bad this was going to be. If you listen to anybody yes. who had any knowledge, yes, you're right about that. Yeah, but that. come on, the, these guys are not in the fact and knowledge and science business, and the president is essentially unstaffable because he goes out and kind of reacts in the moment based on what he's seen on cable news. I I would say a couple of things about this. One. In earlier Trump politics, it was a reality show where, oh, there's the Steve Schiff is saying something in Washington about somebody, and, you know, it's the spectator sport. Now, now, this is a world where people are looking at losing income. If you have a kid, the kid's at home now, and that is a real issue for a zillion, you know, people. So real life has now punctured the bubble of political bullshit in Washington. And it's going to be that way for a while now. So that has the ability to move numbers unlike anything Trump has ever faced. And, you know, I agree they're trying to do the war analogy, but again, that's a rhetorical trick. And Bannon ought to check a little history and find out what happened to Churchill after they won the war. The win the war thing was not a key to re-election. Actually, people wanted the change of the damn channel after the war. And that could be very much what what happens to Trump here. I mean, you know, we, we're in such uncharted territory here we don't know. But fundamentally, as you guys know so well, presidential re-elects are a referendum on the incumbent more than anything else. And he just does not have a stage to operate on that plays to his strengths right now because real lives are being shaken up in a way that has no – you know, it, no similarity to anything that's happened so far. It's all been Washington games till this. 
they also, real ex are often closely pegged to the economy, which is what he was yep. counting on to win right. a re-election. And that's clearly, you know, whatever happens, you know, he keeps saying, well, things will go pop right back to normal after this ends. No economist thinks that. Every mm-hmm. economist is saying that it's going to take some time because, you you know, a lot of businesses are being wiped out. Uh, and so, you know, it's hard to it's hard to recover that. Uh, all at once. I mean, what's happening, you know, to the markets is, is is kind of astonishing. Just just very quickly, just to say one thing about something Mike just said, which I think is is what I think actually what this moment in time marks the the way in which our two stories come together here. You know, the 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 way that Trump, given his approval ratings and his performance, uh, his popular standing, the way for him to win was to do what any unpopular incumbent does, which is to try to make the election not a referendum, but a choice. And so his hope mm-hmm. was, I will get Bernie Sanders as the nominee. That will make my job making this a choice easier. And instead, what he's learned in the course of this week is two things. One, in the course of the last 10 days. One is, he's going to get Joe Biden. And making Joe Biden, making the race a choice election as opposed to a referendum election is going to be harder with Joe Biden than it would have been with Bernie Sanders. And then number two, that this pandemic is going to be a motherfucker. And, and so both of those things are going to rob him of the ability, which he right, probably exactly. didn't have that much of an ability to begin with, but whatever ability he had to try to make this a choice election is now essentially gone. In these economic and financial circumstances with this opponent, there's almost no doubt. I mean, I can't imagine a circumstance in which what we're not looking at here is a referendum election. And I think that's why this, at this, we may remember this period right now as being the ultimate turning point in the whole mm-hmm. general election. And by the way, the election, if you look at the returns from, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders did pretty well in those uh, white working class uh, areas against Hillary Clinton back in 2016. Biden has wiped him out uh, yeah. in those areas. He's also shown enormous strength in those suburban areas that walked away from the Republican Party in 2018. And you begin to see why Trump bought an impeachment trying to stop Biden from becoming uh, becoming the nominee. But I just, uh, you know, I, 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 I want to go back to something you said, John, because the there is another path here for for Trump, which is, you know, he you know, he does have the podium every single day on the only thing people care about. He is, you know, he is pushing the Congress to do what they wouldn't do when Obama was president, which is spend trillions of dollars to try and deal with the economic crisis. And he'll probably drag uh, his Republicans along with him on this uh, and Democrats will be inclined to be there. So he, he will, he will be doing things. Um, And the question is, can he parlay all of this having turned from a guy who said it's no big deal to a guy who says we're at war? Can he parlay this into a, some sort of victory when it comes to the referendum. It's hard because there's something he can't control, and that's the pandemic itself. And we're going to see, sadly, a uh, some significant death toll as a result of this, uh, you know, untold economic disruption. Um, And it's very hard, it seems to me, to come out ahead on that. But I'll tell you, I watched him on that podium when he did his big switcheroo to, yeah, this is really serious, and I'm the general, and I'm in charge. And it struck me, if you step back and just as a clinical matter critique him, uh, you know, the guy has a feral genius for the use of media, 
And that should not be underestimated because it's going to be hard for Joe Biden to to compete with him in terms of making news here. Well, and also for Biden to have the discipline to simplify into empathy and competence and execute that well. Because we know, despite his miracle comeback, that without the Jim Clyburn magic, it may not have happened. Biden has been wobbly so far. Now, he's clearly on vitamins now. Nothing works like winning. But they're going to have to be very disciplined about how they present Biden, how they don't let the Irish temper get in the way like it did at the debate. I mean, there's real Biden improvement needed to be adroit about this. It's a simple message, but it's a hard execution. And you're right. When you're president, you're in the spotlight. Now, I think the, the, the fundamental variable here is Trump is the atomic clock of being Trump. I don't think, you know, there is a way to get a president out of the mess Trump is in if they can operate during a moment like this. And we've never seen Trump operate. Maybe this will be the time, but I remain dubious. Well, what it calls for is selflessness, yeah, exactly. uh, putting the mission ahead of you. That's something that he can't do. I mean, he can't help right. even in these briefings from, uh, you know, for, uh, from engaging in self-puffery. And little asides, even when he was calling the nation to w- move forward on a bipartisan basis and praising bipartisanship. And, you know, he, there were little things like, well, West Virginia's only got two cases so far. That governor must be doing a good job. Uh, yeah. over there. It's like, or, what are you talking about? They haven't the tested ship. anybody. He, he tried to cheat the numbers. Don't park the ship. It was like he was doing one of his old bond deals where he's trying to fool the underwriters. I mean, <laughs> here, the other problem is this thing demands empathy and he's a sociopath. He doesn't have empathy. You, yeah, know? you can fool so, the underwriters, but you can't fool the undertakers. And that's his problem. Oh, Ladies and gentlemen, here all week. <laughs> here all week. <laughs> you know, the, you, it's not just the, the, the West Virginia thing. I mean, look, he's, he's he literally in the same day that he goes on the on the he stands up on the podium and says nice things about Andrew Cuomo. He then turns around and takes a dump on him on Twitter, like within two hours or three hours yeah. after. He can't even keep his empathy. His like, I want to help the states. Like New York is his former home state. He's he's like try like the home of the financial industry. All that there's so much that's here. It's but it's the sharpen of the spear now in terms of in terms of the the impact. It's it's again yet again New York is ground zero in terms of this coronavirus yeah. and and yet President Trump who used to live here. Um, cannot resist, even in a, on a day and in a moment when he's clearly trying to basically say, I want to help Andrew Cuomo, and he goes out and says that, says that he can't resist getting on Twitter within yep, you know, exactly. minutes or hours and attacking Andrew Cuomo and the governor of Michigan and everybody else in the world. He can't change. And if anybody else is a star, he goes crazy. Yes. Yes. On Fauci the other day, he said, oh, he's becoming a TV star. Yes. The next day, Fauci wasn't on the podium. Right. It's Stalin. It, so here's a question for you guys. What is the and I know we don't know, so wild guesses allowed. In the next two weeks, what's the thing that happens that nobody's expecting right now that's a bit of a surprise? doesn't have to be Titanic, but what – I have a feeling we might have some medical good news, these virus cocktails. But I don't know. I'm guessing. But something will happen that, today, that we, yeah. we don't see coming. Well, good news – look, I, I, good news would be welcome, honestly. Uh, I mean, anything that could save lives and reduce suffering – uh, would be welcome. And, and I think that, we, you know, there is a tremendous amount of brain power here and around the world working on this right now. And it wouldn't be astonishing if some at least uh, palliative, uh, 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 you know, palliatives are, are, are developed to address this uh, until they find a vaccine. And, and that would be great. I just want to go back to Trump for a second, though. Yeah. You know, it's it's the it's the the behavior becomes, I think, really toxic for him when it's connected to chaos. 
Yes. Chaos, I think, is the thing that is, mm -hmm. you know, most upsetting to people. And at a time when, you know, I think when the uh, when the uh, after action uh, is done on this, the, the chaos around Trump uh, is going to have been very costly in terms of the dismantlement of units, uh, the pandemic unit in the White House, in terms of the ig ignoring of uh, signals and in terms of the uh, constant turnover that uh, basically dispatches people with institutional memory who are really important in times uh, of crisis. Um, and I think he could pay a high price uh, for that. But I, you know, I'll tell you what, man, I got out of the business of underestimating Trump a long time ago. Right. Well, I think though there's another, there's a darker view though, which is that, you know, a, a, the dark view, David, to go back to your question about how does, how does Trump win a referendum if it's going to be a straight up or down referendum on him? I think, you know, look, if the economic and financial fallout from this are on the, on the, the far end of bad on the spectrum of what could happen, I just don't think there's, it's hard to imagine a way out for him. But if, if it's, there's a and then there's the the possibility that 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 the thing turns out that we we get good, a lot of good news right and and then you've got the scenario that we outlined before where Trump's trying to take credit for the fact that the virus wasn't as bad as as the the, the naysayers and the doomsayers said and and he he somehow beat the Chinese virus uh, ahead of schedule but there's the middle path right where things are bad and they keep getting bad they they exceed his 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 target dates. And we're still in the middle of a very hellish circumstance uh, heading into October. I just imagine a couple of things happening. One of them, that this becomes, you know, he doesn't go down the path of calling for national unity as that kind of wartime president. That we see much more of the kind of racism and xenophobia and jingoism. Yep, exactly. And it gets very, it gets very, very dark. Um, and, and he starts to spin up various kinds of resentments on the global stage and potentially within the country. And he tries to win on that level. And then we start having a conversation about whether the election gets postponed and, and yeah. Trump starts looking for, you know, these, we can't institute paper voting and, and, and vote. we can't institute right. vote by mail right. and we can't institute early voting. It's that you know, the system's not, not designed to accommodate this guys. We're just going to have to, you know, if by my power of executive emergency authority, whatever I, I'm going to, we're going to have to delay the, the presidential vote until, until the circumstances are back under our control and we can have a safe, normal election. And I'm not sure when that will be, but uh, or, give me a or, call. Or in the alternative, there is an election and it just, I mean, it's always been the case that Trump will either win or the election will be stolen from him in right. his telling. And so this would, uh, uh, this would abet that. Just by the way, as an aside, the absence of U.S. leadership globally is really being felt here. You know, I was with Obama in 2009 during the, financial crisis. And I remember him going to the G20 and hammering out joint, uh, you know, uh, approaches to how to deal with this global financial contagion. Uh, there is no such effort that I can see now to pull countries together because absent U.S. leadership, you don't have that. And right. uh, so, you know, America first is a very, very costly uh, a strategy right now. Indeed. And with that, I think we've got to pay some bills here because the fragile commerce of Hacks on Tap is still hanging on by a thread. We're going to do some commercials and then come back and let John have a crack at a mailbag question. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. 
But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now and it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. It's All right, Super Deluxe Mailbag here. We're going to do three of them because we have the Says John Heilman here. Mm. Not cheap, by the way. He's got to open a shopping center in Des Moines and then tape a back-to-back double circus. So we're grateful he is here with us. He's been an early listener, by the way, one of the great boosters of Axe on Tap. This is a question to Axe from Heather. For months, years, we've heard that the traditional path to a presidential nomination involves strong grassroots organization, robust fundraising, coherent messaging, and strong debate performances. Plus, I might add, expensive media consultants. Joe Biden seems to have done none of these things, even marginally well by most standard measures, or at least relative to the rest of the field. And yet now, he is the likely nominee. David Axelrod, what gives? Yeah, I would say, do not follow these Biden rules in the future. I don't know that they uh, always will apply. Look, it's always been true that all those things, grassroots organization, uh, uh, messaging, uh, well, particularly grassroots organization, some of the mechanical aspects of campaigns, are they're the kicking team. You've got to get down the field for them to make any difference in a campaign. They don't win it for you. And Biden has been swept along by forces that are uh, unique and larger. He did have a base among the African American yep. community and that has been very, very important. He does have a he does have appeal in those white working class areas and all of that is true. But it's also true that Democrats ab- above all were looking for a candidate this year to uh defeat Donald Trump. And the most important thing that happened to Joe Biden in this race, I think, was that debate in Nevada when Elizabeth Warren uh kneecapped Mike Bloomberg and took out the other 
most likely uh, candidate in the minds of voters to defeat uh, to defeat uh, Donald Trump. So this is a unique set of circumstances. Biden has his strengths that have overcome his organizational weaknesses, but there's also a tide, a heavy tide that picked him up like a rowboat and carried him about 1,500 miles to the island he was hoping to get to. Uh, and, uh, and, and that is not always going to be the case in these campaigns. Yeah, I'd agree with all that and just quickly say that all those rules are generally true, and I think they may be true again. But the number one rule of politics always and forever has been you better have a base. And Biden had a base in the African-American community that even the African-American candidates couldn't compete with. He was the only candidate who had an early, middle, and late lock on the most important single constituency in the primary once you get out of New Hampshire, and it sure paid off. I'll say, I'll take well, the other quick thing to add to that, I think, is ultimately he was lucky that it ended up being him and Bernie um, in the sense that yeah. what Sanders, what we learned over these, over these primaries and caucuses, is that Bernie ultimately has a real ceiling. And he's really struggled to expand from his hardcore base. I, I, I still think that, you know, the, the, one of the largest questions of this past campaign was like, is, was what happened to Elizabeth Warren? Because the reality is if, if I think if Warren had ended up being the winner in the progressive lane, Biden would have had a much, would, would have been in a much different circumstance if he'd had to go up against her one-on-one. She had much, a much lower ceiling, I think, in the end. Now, obviously her campaign was flawed in various ways and she, and she, could not prevail against Sanders, which speaks to another kind of weakness, set of weaknesses. But I think she would have had a greater capacity to grow her coalition than it turned out Bernie had. And that would have been a harder thing for, for Biden to deal with. Yeah, I agree with that. But she had a theory of the case, and that theory of the case was that she could outperform and ultimately supplant Bernie Sanders as the candidate of the left. Yep. And she underestimated Bernie's base, yep. uh, which w- turned out to be pretty resilient. I totally agree with you, though. You know, the other half of that Nevada piece was Bernie Sanders won Nevada going away and scared the hell out of everyone because it looked like he was going to become the Democratic nominee. And mm-hmm. that hastened the coming together around Biden and, and hastened the, the, uh, the effective end of this primary campaign. And I think just quickly, part of the special sauce in the Elizabeth versus Bernie left off was it wasn't just ideology. Bernie had authenticity. Yeah. Elizabeth was a bit calculating, and I think those voters could sniff the uh, cheap imitation. All right. So, Murphy, I have a question for you about your party, Mike meaning you. Paul says, Mike has predicted that Trump will pick a new vice president at some point this year because it's a reality show method for boosting interest in ratings. Does Pence's appointment as virus czar make this more likely? Well, Paul, excellent question. I've been predicting it for two years, and now I think I'm probably wrong. I thought Trump would always try to change the channel in reaction to a Democrat nominee appearing and getting all the press attention and, you know, start the hunt for the new VP. And I think the media would have fallen for it hook, line, and sinker. The problem is now with novel coronavirus, there's not really as much room for that maneuvering. And though, while I think he probably hates Pence for doing an okay job on some of the briefings, I think it's too late and too complicated. Do I rule it out? No, but I think it's a lot less likely. If there was not a coronavirus and Trump needed to grab the spotlight and shake things up, eh, I think it would still be on the table in his head. I think it's fair to say that Pence is doing an okay job as virus are. I also think mm-hmm. the more extraordinary thing is the way in which he is hugging himself so close to Donald Trump. It's just, it, I, I know it's a point that's been made before, but literally every day that he appears, you're reminded yet again, just how much effort he's putting into making sure that he's the most sycophantic vice president in the history of the world, <laughs> publicly sycophantic. He can't say a, a sentence 
that doesn't start yeah. with, you know, it's President a, Trump is the yes. greatest president in history and has been handled At this. the request of the president, on the orders of the president. President, yes. The president had the foresight to, that would be a great drinking game if bars were open. Yes. Yeah, how many times will uh, Mike Pence mention the president in a briefing? But he also knows his man. Yes. And uh, <laughs> so. Uh, oh, yeah. He knows what he's dealing with. He'd like to live to tomorrow. So Kimberly, uh, John Heilman, asked, can you discuss voter turnout to date for the 2020 Democratic primaries? And if you see any trends that could extend to the general election? Well, Kimberly, I I. I think that if there, this goes back to one of the things we've been discussing here today, is there going to be a general election? I wonder what form it will, what form it will it take? I mean, in a rational world, we would have a general election still in November uh, on the date specified, and we would have the ability for every American to send in a, 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 a to vote by mail and and, and early vote. Um, whether we end up in that world or not is a huge, huge outstanding question uh, in terms of how the general election is going to be conducted. You know, what we saw in this Democratic race was, you know, once we got past Iowa and uh, and New Hampshire, what we saw it was overwhelming turnout in, you know, state after state where Democrats are fired up and ready to go. And and the the, the Biden coalition that, that David Axelrod talked about earlier in this program was out in force. I think there are two things that are broadly true. One is that Biden, if, if you take Biden's performance, uh, you could feel pretty good as a Democrat that he was going to be able to, if he performs well, is he going to be able to generate the kind of turnout that Democrats uh, hope to see and need to see if they're going to beat Donald Trump? I think it's still the case that uh, the Trump campaign, again, prior to this virus, at least, was spending tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in a smart way to try to identify uh, white non-college voters in the five or six states that are going to matter in the election and turn those people out. And so I, I think the trends of, of, of uh, high Democratic turnout on one side, high Republican turnout, higher Republican turnout than we saw in 2016 with all the focus that the Trump people are giving to it, those are the two givens outside the context of the virus. But now in the, within the context of the virus, I have no idea what's going to happen uh, when, we get to the, when we get to November. Yeah, there's been very heavy turnout in those suburban areas. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a it's it's building on what we saw in 2018, 18. and that's got to be uh, concerning uh, for Trump. Guys, I got to interrupt here because as we were speaking, the president was uh, speaking to uh, reporters, and he was asked why he signed this Defense Defense Production Act to. Uh, compel industry to produce the things that we need. It was something that we did during World War II, uh, you know, the arsenal of democracy, to produce the medical infrastructure uh, that we need. And he and then he tweeted after he signed that that this would only be used in the worst-case scenario. Well, you have to actually get out in front of the worst-case scenario, not wait for it. But his answer was, quote, governors are supposed to be doing a lot of this work. We're not a shipping clerk. Oh, there you go. So, there you go. Again, yeah. FDR, Churchill, they're all smiling from their graves at the kind of iron leadership. Hey, I want to take a quick crack at the turnout thing, and then we can go on to last call very We're quickly. We're not shipping clerks. I think uh, neither are we. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm going to put on my Kreskin glasses here and make a prediction. I think we will have – it'll be big turnout. It'll be a normal election day. We'll have the election because I think it'll be the critical symbol of renewal for the country. 
Uh, and I think on the disease curve, it'll there'll still be precautions, but we'll be back. So I don't think the I, I hope you're right. Slide I, I really hope you're right. I mean, so, you know, um, one of these things about these uh, viruses is they tend to ebb in the summer and 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 reemerge in the in the fall. So we'll we'll see what happens. But I sure hope you're right. So let's just we just have a, a few seconds for the last call. Last call. <laughs> what do you got, X? I got into a little exchange with my buddy David Pluff yesterday, who uh, I revere. We, we were partners for years and years and years, and partners in the Obama campaign. He and other, uh, he's leading an organization and other organizations who are mounting a uh, a big media campaign uh, uh, against Trump on about his handling of the coronavirus. It's obvious that I share. Their concerns about the way he's handled it. I do worry about the timing of these and how they'll be received and whether people are going to be really eager to hear those attacks. I know that the base of the Democratic Party will, but at the end of the day, I wonder about the timing of it and whether the politi- the further politicization. You know, right now, Trump is the guy who's guilty of that. Do Democrats want to follow him? And if, in fact, this thing is as bad as it seems. Will people remember these ads back from March or will the story advance? If it gets better, will they remember these stories from March? I just question this, but I may be wrong about it. Yeah, it seems off to me and it opens, it gives Trump a purely partisan war to go fight, which would help him rally his people. My last call is just a quick note to Republican governors. Take a page from what the Democratic governors are doing and get out front on this because you don't have a president you can rely on to give the, the country leadership. And a special subnote to Governor DeSantis of Florida. Get the beaches cleared, you idiot. What are you thinking? I tweeted that we might have to have the deep state fake a shark attack now at this point. Letting people congregate on beaches in Florida or anywhere else is public health insanity. And I would think a big state governor like DeSantis would know better. Shocking to me that the state of Florida has not done anything about this. And, John, you're going to get the last word of the last calls. I, you know, we're at this moment, right, where the anal- wartime analogies are are being are back in vogue and, and President Trump for his own cynical political purposes is, is trying to portray himself as a wartime president. But here's one of the things that happened the last time, something we've not, that this generation, actually none of our generations have experienced. We're, we're nobody here from the greatest generation on this show uh, right now. Um, you guys may be the Geritol generation, but there's no one here that's the greatest generation performer. I think what happened in World War II was the extraordinary mobilization of the private sector to help fight the war. And there's an enormously powerful private sector in America right now. And you see people like Elon Musk saying, you know, we're ready to, to he tweeted yesterday, where we will make ventilators if there is a shortage. I think, you know, the message has to go out pretty soon that the federal government's not doing a very good job providing the leadership that's required to mobilize the private sector to, to, to help in this effort. So guys in the private sector, you know, there's a shortage of all these things right now. Start doing this stuff on your own. And you can both do a lot of good for the country and also end up looking like heroes down the line because there's you, you will be remembered if you are a manufacturing company, if you are uh, somewhere in America right now, and you just take it onto yourselves to start making the stuff that needs to get made. Don't wait for Donald Trump. That's a fool's errand. Like, let's just let's get going here. Um, it's in your interest and it's in the country's interest. So go forth and produce. That's great. I want to give you a hallelujah on that. I saw at MIT the Sloan Prize a year or two ago was won by a couple of college engineering kids from Boston 
who designed a simple 2,000-hour ventilator to use in poor countries like Pakistan. You know, the inventive power we have in the private sector, you're absolutely right about that. I I was hoping, and it would never happen with Trump, but, you know, appoint a Mitt Romney and a couple of key CEOs to give a little leadership to this, and I think we'd be knocking the things out by the thousands. Well, John, thank you for being our special guest. Thanks for having me, guys. This was great. I love being hacked for a day. Maybe I'm actually <laughs> hacked for life. That's why I'm here. All right, Axe, great talking to you. We'll be back next week. All right, brother. Talk to you later. 